Good evening, everyone, and welcome. Tonight's class is titled Hosting God. Can we host God? Can we host God? And I would hope so because he's the Lord of hosts. But maybe he hosts us. Well, the host of lords. Well said. Thank you. And well, let's start off with a little something for Purim. Purim is Wednesday morning is the fast of Esther. Wednesday night we're going to read the Megillah. And again, Thursday we're going to read the Megillah. On Wednesday we fast. There's two points I want to share. First, I want to talk about fasting on Wednesday. We fast on Wednesday, and the fast is called the Fast of Esther. Now, maybe we should call it the Fast of Mordechai. Esther was the safest person from all the Jewish people. Ultimately, ultimately, just let's be a little extreme. If the Jewish people would have been hurt, Esther was safe. Why is it called the Fast of Esther? What happened on the 13th day of Adar in the story of Purim? Okay, a little review for us to understand the question. Haman made a lottery, a poor. That's why it's called Purim. The lottery came into the month of Adar, and he said, I'm going to destroy the Jewish people in the month of Adar. The lottery fell out on the 13th day of the year, of the month. So, 11 months prior, actually, on Pesach, Haman, sent, Haman makes his lottery, and the whole story happens with the three-day fast. In the Megillah, it says that a decree of the king cannot be changed. Ahasuerus had signed a, roy a royal decree to kill the Jewish people on the 13th day of Adar, and that cannot be taken back. It's quite an interesting thing. Imagine if the president said something, it could never be changed. That was, the, that was the reality of the scenario back in Persia. If the king said something, I guess kings were un... They could never make mistakes. And if he said it, it could never be changed. So what was the plan? How are we going to go around this? The plan was to send out a second letter to the Jewish people to fight back. But the 13th day of Adar, even after the whole story of Purim, was still a scary day. Well, let's just look at, so let's, Esther goes to King Ahasuerus, right? We actually, we normally end the story saying that Esther, the Jewish people fasted for three days, and Esther went to Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus came to a party, and the second day Haman was killed, and we end the story there. That's not the end. Because remember, there were still some serious anti-Semites, let's say. Mm -hmm. And when the 13th day of Adar came, 11 months later, where there was a royal decree to kill the Jewish people still in effect, it was still a scary time. The miracle was that the Jewish people fought on the 13th. And in Shushan, they also fought on the 14th. And thank God the Jewish people were not hurt. So now, let's go back and, and talk. Why do we fast on the 13th day of Adar? What's the reason we're fasting? Well, to pray that um, the king will <clears throat> overturn the decree to um, annihilate the Jews. I just walked in on the side. No, no. Well, so let's, let's take Elisa's thought. 
-hmm. are, we are we fasting on the day, if we're fasting on the day before Purim, that Achashverosh should accept Haman's request, Esther's request, then that fast should be the day before Pesach. Because that's when Esther went to, Achash went to Achashverosh. The day before Pesach or the day before yeah. Purim? Pesach. Wow. Interesting. But we can't do it then because it's the fast of the firstborn. If you come to my parents' house on Pesach, they always have a dish, the second day of Pesach, called Esther's dish. Mm -hmm. Because the two days, the meal where Achashverosh came with Haman to Esther's house, happened on Pesach. The lottery Haman made was made in the days of Nisan. It fell out he, he said he, he's going to kill the Jewish people in the month of Adar, 11 months later. So the story took the, the intensity of the story when Esther, when Esther sends a message to, to Mordechai, why is your clothing torn? And Mordechai says, because there's a decree against us. And if you're not going to save the Jewish people, another way will come. That story happened around the days of Pesach. By the way, that is the only year recorded that there was no Seder. Because the Jew, there was no Seder that year because the Seder took place during the three-day fast. It's the only day, it's the only time ever we have recorded that there was no Seder. So why are, so now, at least if that's true, then we're not, we, we're not fasting the day before Purim that Achashvero should listen to Esther. But that's the wrong timing. That story happened. But so why are we fasting now? When we hear the story, we don't know about the time lag. The time lag is it's clear. It's a six-year time story. That it's it's very. I'd love to talk about it not now, but it's 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 a fast. It's a six-year story. Yeah. Could you briefly cover why there's no mention of Hashem in the Megillah? No, I want to focus on this point. I appreciate oh, I, the point. I thought you'd wound it up. I, I want to focus on this point. So why, is, why are we fasting? We're fasting to remind us that when we're at war, which the 13th day was the day of war, we need, we need to reach out to Hashem to help us. And when we reach out to Hashem, He saves us. We fast the day before Purim, that Hashem should help us win the war. And whenever we fast, Hashem should listen to us. So why is it called the fast of Purim? And the Rebbe gives this novel explanation, and I needed to share it with you. I had to get it out. If you're, fast, if you're fighting, you don't fast. Mm -hmm. Who was the only person on the 13th day of Adar that was not fighting? That's Esther. That's the only person that fasted on that day, in the year the story took place, the only person who was safe and was not fighting was Esther. So we called the fast of Esther because she was the only person who fasted during that war. Mm. An incredible insight. Okay. So, so it's literal. Literal. The fast of Esther. Esther was the only person who fasted on that day while the Jewish people were fighting. Okay. I don't, let, let's throw ourselves into the Tanya. Why isn't Hashem mentioned? I'm going to leave it for now. I, I, He's not going to let it go. No, it, it, it's a good... Well, doesn't say the time frame, does it? If you look carefully, it does. 
Wikipedia. You have to look carefully. Yeah. Listen carefully. In the third, in the third year of Achashverosh's oh, reign, oh, the beauty contest took a few years. Oh, the so, will you answer David's question sometime tonight? Okay, David has a question. I'm going to answer right now. His question is, why is God's name not mentioned in the Megillah? But I'm sure he has an answer he wants to share on it. No, I don't. I don't remember. So I'm going to my resident expert. Why is God's name not mentioned? Why, why is God's name not mentioned? I think it has something with Hester Panim, or the hiding the face. The Gragger, okay, I'm, I'm, we're going to go a little bit into Purim and Hanukkah now. Let, let's, we're officially talking about Purim and Hanukkah. Let's digress for a minute. We'll have to share with you something fascinating. Purim and Hanukkah, they're all intertwined. The dates, you know I just shared with you that Purim, the story of Purim took place during the days of Pesach. The story of, the story of Purim also took place during the days of Hanukkah. So it really never took place during the days of Purim. <laughs> how do I know this? this is, how do I know this? The Gemara tells us when did Esther go to Ahasuerus for the first time during the whole contest? Yeah. On the first day of Tavis, which is during Hanukkah. So it's an interesting thing. She, the, the, the night that she went to Achashverosh was Aleph Tevis, Rosh Chodesh Tevis, and uh, that's actually about approximately the fifth or sixth night of Hanukkah. So now Purim is now connected with Hanukkah and Pesach. So why is Hashem's name not mentioned? Let's talk about the, the let's go to Hanukkah. Hanukkah we have a dreidel. Mm -hmm. The dreidel, the tip is on the top. Mm -hmm. Purim is the exact opposite. We have a gragger. The tip is on the bottom. And that's exactly the answer to your question. In Hanukkah... Oh, now it's clear. Now it's crystal clear, right? <laughs> Hanukkah, in the al we say there were five Maccabees, very few Maccabees. It was a miracle. There was no other way to put it than Hashem had brought a miracle. We say that the few against the many... They, the, the Greeks had elephants, all this new weaponry and mm -hmm. warfare that uh, mm -hmm. it was a clear miracle. And that's why the tip of the dreidel is on the top. We saw God every step of the way. Purim, we actually, if you want, unfortunately, you could say God, God had nothing to do with it. What happened? There was, a beautiful, there was a beautiful lady named Esther. The king happened to marry her. It happened to be that, I, it's just crazy, it was, it was a crazy coincidence, but Mordechai happened to be from the Sanhedrin and knew all 70 languages, and he happened to listen to people that wanted to kill Achashverosh, and he happened to pass on the message to Esther. The story of Purim, if you want to keep God out of it, you can. Before I continue, is everyone familiar enough with the story of Purim to understand what I said, or should I get into a little detail? I'll get into a little detail. Let's get into a little detail here. Okay, I have by raise of hand. Is anyone going to be disappointed if we focus on Purim rather than Tanya? Anybody want? Will anyone be disappointed if we focus on Purim rather than Tanya tonight? As long as we don't take too long, because I have a date with my girlfriend Vashti. 
You, you, I get to the show thing, God thing. We'll, we'll see. So let's talk about this. I'm going to be very disappointed if you don't. Achashverosh was a stable boy. He was a nobody. He fought his way to be king, and he he clicked the kingship by marrying the the princess Vashti. In other words, his his way to power was actually through marriage. That was one of the things that actually, so to say, backfired in the story. Was he was a drunkard, mm-hmm. and. Why he made this 180-day party? Why did he make this 180-day party? Because, according to his calculations, everybody knew, everybody knew that the Jewish people were promised by God that after 70 years of exile, they're going to go back to Israel. Vashti's grandfather was who? Was Nebuchadnezzar. Vashti's grandfather was the person who had, who had destroyed and exiled the Jewish people from Israel. So. In the year of the party, according to their calculations, 70 years had passed. Mm-hmm. And it was clear that God had forsaken the Jewish people. So for this, they made this massive 180-day party, and they actually displayed a lot of artifacts from the temple. Um, according to many opinions, Achashverosh actually was wearing the high priest's garments mm-hmm. by the celebration. Question. question. Um, so uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he was a Babylonian, right? And and, and now they're in Persia, right? It's so, a big empire. So so he he married a, a uh, somebody from Babylonia then. No, the things were happening fast. Actually, during that 70-year period, there were actually two separate exiles of Madai and Pras. I don't want to go there, but that's a good question. So, in the, the, the reason for this feast of Ahasuerus was celebrating the fact that, that God had forsaken the Jewish people and his kingdom was safe. He was worried, you know, should the God take back the Jewish people, he's going to collapse. His kingdom is now safe. And at the end of the party, he makes a, an, another seven-day party. He gets intoxicated and he asks that Vashti come out with only the crown on her, nothing else. And uh, Vashti sends back a message to her husband. She says, you're just a little uh, stable boy. You don't know how to handle wine. And I'm not coming, and back and forth. And uh, she gets leprosy, um, and she doesn't come. Achashverosh is still intoxicated. He calls his advisors. He actually called the Jewish advisors and asks them what to do. The Jewish advisors knew whatever they say, they'll be in bad trouble. They're, they're just so he calls his other advisors and actually Memuchan, who we learn is Haman. Haman was the person who told Achashverosh to kill Vashti. Why did Haman tell Achashverosh to kill Vashti? Ultimately, his intention was Achashverosh should marry his own daughter. That didn't end up happening. Achashverosh wakes up. He's now upset. Uh, he has no wife, and they cre- and uh, they create now this whole beauty contest. Um, Esther becomes queen, and while Esther is queen, Mordechai overhears Big Son and Seresh plotting to kill the king. Mordechai 
passes the message on to Esther, who passes the message on to Ahasuerus. We'll get, we're, this is a very important detail that we're going to get back to in a minute. Okay, and the king writes it down in his chronicles. At this point, Haman becomes second in power. Haman says, everyone needs to bow down to me. Haman wears an idol around his neck, and Mordechai will not bow down to him. Additionally, there's a midrash we're not going to get into, but fascinating to know that actually at a previous point in life, Haman had actually sold himself as a slave to Ahasuerus. You heard this midrash before? It's a fascinating midrash. Mark, you've heard of it before? I'm, I'm, this is my, it's new to me. So, okay, I'll share it with you. It's, it's a crazy midrash. They were at war together, and they were two different leaders of commanders. Um, and Haman got rid of all his, he, he just ate up all his food right away. And Mordechai was kind of being really tough about it. And uh, Haman said, look, I'm going to die. If I don't have anything, could you give me something? So Mordechai said, look, I'll give you, but I want you to sign over. What are you going to give me? So Haman said, I'll give you myself. And actually, Haman, Mordechai had a document um, that said, I, Haman, give you myself as a slave. So, actually, when we look at the story, not only did Mordechai not bow down to him, but whenever Haman saw Mordechai, he felt like he's a nothing. It, it was, there was a lot more in this whole conversation. So now, Haman is mad. He goes home, and his wife, who we learned in the Talmud, was one of the most wicked women ever. She tells Haman that his solution is to get rid of Mordechai. Um, and Haman then they decide not only are they going to get rid of Mordechai, they're going to get rid of all the Jewish people, and they built the gallows 75 feet tall. Um, he and his ten sons, they built this gallows. Meanwhile, the Jewish people find out about the decree that they're going to, that they're going to be killed. Haman calls, Ham, um, Mordechai needed Esther to get the message. Esther didn't know anything, she was oblivious to it, so he started wearing sackcloth. Daniel, the prophet, mm -hmm. he, uh, he was sending messengers, messages back between Mordechai and Esther. And actually, in the middle of this, unfortunately, Haman killed the prophet Daniel, the famous prophet Daniel with the writing on the wall. He actually was killed during those, that little time period because um, Haman wanted to stop Esther from finding out what was happening. Um, but Esther gets the message that basically God is going to save the Jewish people you have the ability to do it. Mm -hmm. If you don't do it, you'll be gone. Mm -hmm. But someone else is going to save the Jewish people. And, and that's where Esther says that Vashti was killed because she didn't listen to the king. The king has a rule. You can't come without 30 days notice. He hasn't called on me. If I go, he's going to kill me. Um, so Mordechai says, look, this is what you need to do. And there's a very, very important addition here which isn't often spoken about, it's a little more detailed, but Esther was right now in a relationship with a non-Jew. But that wasn't a problem. Why the Gemara says, Karka Oilam Haisa. In other words, she was forced into this relationship. She never willingly went into it. When she was actually now going to go to Ahasuerus willingly, she was actually now willingly getting involved in this relationship. Willingly, of course, it was for the Jewish people, but nonetheless, and we know that she was actually previously married to Mordechai. 
So when she was now going to willingly go to, Mor- to Ahasuerus, even if she would remain alive, she had given up any connection at this point with Mordechai. She had basically said that she's basically taken a step separating her um, 100%. So it was a very serious step, physically, spiritually, emotionally. But she said, and that's what she says at the end of the the chapter of Akashir, Avadati, Avadati. If I'm lost, I'm lost. Whether it's going to be, I'm physically going to be killed, spiritually, whether it's going to be, um, you know, with, from the Jewish people, I'm going to do this. They make a three-day fast. Um, the three day, there's a three-day fast. At the end of the three-day fast, Esther goes to the king. And again, this was also didn't really make much sense because Ahasuerus liked Esther because she was beautiful and now she's fasting three days. She's it's removing her beauty, but she knew it was all God here. She goes to King Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus stretches out his scepter. Interesting, the Talmud says his scepter actually extended, kind of like Batya's hand we learn, extended to reach Moshe, his scepter extended. And Esther says, look, uh, so he says, what do you want? Anything, I'll give you up to half my, half my kingdom aside for the Holy Temple. Interesting, he didn't even know she's Jewish at this point. Mm. I'll give you anything aside for, for, up to half my kingdom aside for rebuilding the Temple. And Esther says, look, all I want is for you and Haman to come to my house tonight. So this immediately sent bells into Ahasuerus' head. He's like, something's wrong here. You know, invite me, but why is Haman in this picture? Which was kind of what Esther wanted. She wanted there to be some... And they come to Esther's house, and again, that night, and again, Ahasuerus says, what do you want, my wife? And she says, nothing. I just want you to come to another meal tomorrow night with Haman. So Haman leaves this meal the first night he's on top of the heavens. He's like, boy, this is, this is the best. I get. The queen is inviting me. I'm, I'm the best ever. And he says, look, we need a... And then he sees Mordechai. So he went from here to here. So he's like, that's it. We're done. Tomorrow we're going to hang Mordechai. And actually that's the night where he builds the gallows and he goes to King Ahasuerus and he says, Ahasuerus, well, he's about to come into the palace. But beforehand, Ahasuerus can't sleep that same night. And, his <clears throat> and he says, look, read me some stories. And uh, that night, his, the person that was working with him was actually one of Haman's sons. And the book of Chronicles kept on opening to the story of Mordechai saving the king's life. And Haman's son wouldn't read it. He didn't want to read about his father's enemy. Mm-hmm. So actually we learned that the angel Gavriel came and, and read the Chronicles. He read the story. Now listen. The story was written down exactly the way it happened. Esther shared that there was a plot against the king's life in Mordechai's name. And that is what saved the Jewish people. What happened here? The story is being read and so Ahasuerus says, was Mordechai ever reward, rewarded for this? And they say, no, he was never rewarded. I want to stop for a second. From here we learn, the Mishnah says, that if you go ahead and repeat things in the name of the original author, you bring redemption. That's the story that happened here. Esther shared the author of, the, of who had shared this conspiracy was Mordechai. She didn't have to. But she shared to the king that Mordechai had told her about this conspiracy of Big Son and Sarish, and that is ultimately going to save the Jewish people. From here we learn in ethics of our fathers, that, if, that you should always say things in the name of the original author. Not come say, oh, I had a brainstorm, when really you just heard it. So at that moment, 
as as Haman as Achashverosh can't sleep, and Achashverosh is learning the story of Mordechai saving his life. Haman barges in, about to say, "I want to kill Mordechai," and before he even does anything, Achashverosh stops him and says, "What should be done to the man whom the king wishes to honor?" Ah, so now Haman's doing even better. He's like, I, that's me, right? He says, no problem. He says, boy, he should ride on the king's horse, put the king's crown on his head. And now Ahasuerus is, even, is more furious. He's like, this man wants the king. He wants to be king. But he turns to, Mordechai, he turns to Haman and he says, you know what? It's a brilliant idea. Do it to Mordechai, and you yourself are going to do it. So, so Haman says, which Mordechai? There's a hundred, thousands of people. So he says, no, no, no. Mordechai HaYehudi HaYeshiv You know exactly which Mordechai I'm talking about. And he takes Mordechai around town. Didn't he have to lead the horse? He had to lead the horse. His daughter actually saw the procession and she saw two people. She knew Haman and Mordechai were in the procession and she was sure that Mordechai was the person leading mm -hmm. Haman around and she actually took a barrel of, of uh, dirt and threw it on who she thought was Mordechai on her father's head. Um, so now her father l finishes this parade and he's filthy and he gets home um, and at the moment he gets home filthy he's late for the second meal already. So the king's messengers come and they grab him as he is filthy to come to the second meal. He comes to the second meal and that's where Esther says that this man wanted to kill me. Um, and where, um, where Ahasuerus has Haman hung on the gallows, he wanted to kill Mordechai. Like I said, the story is not yet over. The decree to kill the Jewish people is still intact for 11 months later. And uh, 11 months later, on the 13th day of Adar, which is this Wednesday, the Jewish people defended it themselves. Um, and the following day, on the 14th, they celebrated. However, in Shushan, the capital, they actually fought a second day. And that is why in Shushan, in the city of Susa, um, Iran today, you would celebrate Purim on the 15th day and similarly in Jerusalem or any walled city. That's the story. And they killed more um, uh, uh, Haman's sons who were also involved, which is interesting because they were the descendants that were wiped out because of um, the name escapes Amalek, yeah. Um, from Amalek, so yeah. they wiped them all out. Right. So now, in the story of Purim, there's no miracle. There's nothing here that is a miracle. What's the miracle? There was no mighty army against a few. There's nothing miraculous. If you want, you could just say it's a nice, it's a nice story. Is there any miracle mark? Is there anything that says this must have been the hand of God here? Hmm. Shmuel, what do you think? What do I think? It, I, I think life's a miracle. I think everything. Of course, but if you want, in the story of Hanukkah, you couldn't have said. It was just a natural occurrence. Right. Yeah, there was a miracle. In the story of Purim, if you want to, you could go ahead and say that it, it was just a natural occurrence. What did we just need another holiday? Or we also needed another holiday, yeah. Yeah. And that is why on Hanukkah, the dreidel points upwards because we saw God. On Purim, it's downwards because God was concealed inside of the holiday. And that is why Hashem's name is not mentioned once inside of the Megillah. You will not see the name of God because God was hidden in this story. Comes the question, is that a good thing or is it a bad thing? That God's name was hidden? Is it a good... 
which miracle is greater? The miracle of Hanukkah or the miracle of Purim now? Why do we have to make a comparison? We always have to. We, we want to know. When it comes to every holiday, we always want to know the uniqueness of the holiday. And in general, the question is, what is greater, miracles or nature? God's in charge either way. Yes. <laughs> actually, no. And let me share why. We actually learn that the hardest thing is, not the hardest thing, for God to do a miracle, you have God breaking nature. But the ultimate is actually when Hashem is clear within nature. So the story of Purim actually reveals a deeper dimension of Hashem. So that is why Hashem's name is not mentioned okay. in this story. I, I, I won't take long, but I need to respectfully disagree. Okay. <laughs> Every play, with the exception of the slaying of the firstborn, shows that Hashem uses nature. Because everyone can be documented as a natural force, but in its extreme. You mean modern science? Pardon me? Modern science? Yes. You, it, 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 Hashem uses nature, but He uses it to the extreme. Everything can be documented through archaeology or geology. Uh, the Great Flood, for instance, or in the case of the locusts, that those plagues occur and how they occur and why. <coughs> All of those things can show. Right, just like the Red the sea. miracle of it was that mm -hmm. they occurred through natural reasons in the sequence that they did, which could occur in nature. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you and say the that. Timing of it. Even when it comes to the splitting of the sea, mm -hmm. the Torah doesn't say the water split. <laughs> the Torah says an east wind came right. Yeah. Right, and right, split right. the wind, split right. the ri split the water. See, so it's an know. it's an interesting yeah. point. Kind of yes, because I've heard the story with Esther that. She's more, she was an orphan, and she was Mordecai's niece. Right. And then also I've heard that she was Mordecai's wife. Right. So... Is there any contradiction between all that? Well, you... Could you elaborate, please? It's not on the table of prohibited marriages. I am asking a rabbi a question. The, an the answer is, I'll flip it to you. There's a mitzvah to marry your niece. Go ahead. Your niece. Just one... To marry your niece. How do we know this? Avraham married his niece, Abraham. Abraham had a brother. There's two brothers. I'm, I'm, it could be I'm getting the wrong one, but I think his brother, Sarbasnacher. Sarah, I'm, I'm forgetting which brother, but Sarah, Sarah was Abraham's niece. And from here we learn that it's actually a very positive thing to marry your niece. I thought it was positive for a brother to marry his brother's wife if the brother dies before they have children. But that's not a niece. No, no, that's a whole... That, that's no relation. That's, right. on, that's like a mitzvah, unfortunately, right. to not let your brother's name go to vain and, and, and keep up his legacy, but correct. The but there's no problem marrying your niece. Um, and so, yes, the, everything you said is true. The... the uh, the wording of the Talmud is that Esther was an orphan. The, the wording of the Megillah is Esther was an orphan, and she was Levas, as a daughter. Esther was to Mordechai as a daughter. But the Talmud says, let's not read it as a daughter, let's read it Lebayis, as a house. They built a house together. But I thought he was married to someone else. Mordechai? Yeah. Not no. that I know of. Oh, okay. okay. Not that I know of.
Brief vocabulary question. Is Dre a Hebrew word or a Yiddish word? Or Which both? word? Dre. Dre? The Yiddish. Okay. Let's... Uh, let's learn a little Tanya. Let's learn a little Tanya. Page 154. Page 154, the right-hand column. And we spoke how the forefathers, the reason they are our forefathers and no one else's is because they were the chariot of God. They had a unity, a oneness with Hashem like no one else. The prophets had it on a lower level. And when Hashem tried to have the connection with us, we lost ourselves. That's what happened to the giving of the Torah. Twice Hashem tried to have that connection to really reveal Himself within us, and we lost ourselves. We died. And we, said, we told Hashem, we want Moshe to communicate with us. So instead Hashem said, look, if Hashem said, let me... My home will be the Holy Temple. Okay. The Mishkan, and then later in the Holy Temple. Mm -hmm. But, continues Tanya, page 154, but now, since the Temple was destroyed, we don't have a Temple today. Mm -hmm. So the Holy One, blessed is He, has no sanctuary or established place for His habitation, that is, for His unity. Blessed be He. Mm -hmm. Now, Hashem's home is gone. So where is Hashem? Other than the four cubits of halacha. You know, on Shabbos, the Torah says, Al yetu ish mimikomo. You shouldn't, you're not supposed to carry anything. You're not supposed to carry, unless there's an Eruv. But let's say there's no Eruv, and you're in a public domain, you shouldn't carry. Does that mean you're not allowed to pick something up? No, it means you shouldn't move it. How far shouldn't you move it? You shouldn't move it more than your, yourself. Every person takes up space. What is the space of a person, says the Talmud? The space of a person is six, six feet in every direction. In other words, in every, if, uh, that circle around me. So, when someone, when we want to talk about a person and the space that he's occupying, we say four cubits. Four cubits, a cubit is a foot and a half, six feet. So the Talmud shares that from when the temple was destroyed, From the day the temple was destroyed, this is the Talmud in Brachos 8a. Hashem doesn't have Ela Arba Halacha The only where is God found in the four in the four cubits of someone learning halacha. So Hashem may not have a temple, but he has the four cubits of a person learning. What's what does that mean? What does it mean? Which is his will, blessed be he and his wisdom, as embodied in the laws which have been set out for us. This is an unbelievable idea. Hashem has taken his 
wisdom, which is we can't understand. What's the first letter of the Ten Commandments? The first word of the Ten Commandments? Anochi. Anochi, I. Anochi is an Egyptian word. It's not even a, it's not even a Hebrew word. How do you say I in Hebrew? Ani. Ani. Anochi is an Egyptian word. Why the Egyptian word? Why Anochi? The Talmud tells us Anochi stands for four words. Aleph stands for Ana, I, in Aramaic now. Nafshi, my soul, God is talking. I have put my soul, Kisavis, and written, and Yehavis, and given you the Torah. In the Torah, I've placed my soul. God is, uh, we can't understand Hashem, and yet Hashem has said, I've taken my essence and put it inside of the most mundane items. So I was talking to a fellow friend of mine, and he says, I don't really like Baba Metzia. It's kind of dull, it's boring. What do you hear about it? Baba Kama. You have an ox, and if you, anyone here have an ox? You have an ox? I used to have one. I grew up in Africa. We had lots of them. Okay. And elephants. So and let's just talk about the story. Did your ox ever gore a person? And if it did, did it ever gore a person, four different people, and kill four people? Not that I remember. No, no, you don't remember. Okay. Yeah. I mean, because this is what we're teaching our eighth grade students across the world right now. I mean, you teach them about, uh, you, you teach what happens if your elephant, yeah, if it steps on someone else's sh um, clay vessels and breaks. Do you have clay vessels in your house, by the way? Maybe a few of them, right? Did, you, did an elephant ever come and step on them with no. its foot? No. <laughs> we have that happen all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's mundane. But in these laws, the essence of God is found. And that is why we're never going to stop learning these laws, even if they're not practical, even if they're not relevant. Hashem's essence is inside of those laws. Hashem has taken His essence and put it them inside of these halacha. And that is what we're saying now, that if you want to get the essence of Hashem, you're going to find it in, in the law. Why law? Because when you learn an argument, well, now there's back and forth. When you actually learn the law of Torah, you have clarity, and within that clarity is the essence of Hashem. So if, I, if you come and say, should my mezuzah be straight or bent, and I tell you, well, that's a good question, they're both true, that's correct, they're both true. But we want, the, we want to know what's the practical halach. And within that practical halach, you have the essence of Hashem. Like Hashem was in the Holy Temple. But isn't that clarity different for everyone? What do you mean? The clarity of the essence of Hashem. Because we all have different relationships with Hashem. The Torah will crystallize that. I don't understand. So you could say it in other words? So my relationship with Hashem is different than your, at this point in time, is different than your relationship with Hashem. What you've just said is that by the study we do, it crystallizes and clarifies the essence of who Hashem is. No. Okay. Well, we're not going to... This doesn't mean that we're now going to understand who God is. 
But it does mean that what we are understanding connects us with the essence of Hashem. You remember last week, last week we discussed, two weeks ago, that if your spouse wants you to do one thing and you do the other, then you're not doing what your spouse wants. That never happens. I know, you told me the same thing last week also. <laughs> so at least you're saying two for two. <laughs> but nobody did ask me. <laughs> but of course it never happened. I'm just standing up for a second. <laughs> Let's talk about knowledge, understanding. Chapter 5 of Tanya. Chapter 5 tells us when you understand something, you've Let's grasped talk about it. What? Uh, understanding something. Oh. Knowledge. Okay. Das. Das. When you understand something, it's yours. You know, they say if you, that you, you could own the Talmud. How do you own the Talmud? If you know it by heart. It's yours. You own it. It's yours. When you, when you have Torah knowledge, it's yours. You, God is within you now. But the simplicity of the Torah law the knowledge of the Torah law, the clarity of the Torah law, that within it has the essence of God. It has the essence of God, Shmuel. You're with me? I missed a little part when you turned away. So let me, let me say it again. When you understand the Torah law, you now have, you have within you the essence of God. So if we understand all you, halacha, everything, then we understand the essence of God. You're right. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying it correctly. Just You'll never understand the essence of God. But God has allowed us to accept within us the essence of God by the knowledge of the halacha. That means, not that all of a sudden we understand the essence. We can't. But Hashem has put his, his essence within the simple halacha. The simple law. So when I understand the simple law of putting on tefillin, of lighting Shabbos candles, of eating kosher, when I understand that knowledge, within me I now have the essence of God. So Mark, now repeat your question. So... My relationship with Hashem is different than your relationship with Hashem. Okay. But as I'm gathering knowledge, which is different to your level of knowledge of the Torah and Halakha and your understanding of the essence of who Hashem is, I get through what I know today the essence of Hashem at my level. I feel like I have that understanding. Okay. Your understanding is not everybody at this table has a slightly different understanding based on where they are and their relationships with Hashem. We, I believe, and I'm not going to speak for everybody else, that I understand the essence of Hashem in my way. And everybody else is going to understand it in their way, whatever that is, based on what we've learned and what we're doing and where I am in my world and my life. With a lot of similarities. I mean, there's a... You know, a lot of us have similar knowledge. So, let me give you an example. We had a we had a little interesting thing here with Minka. When you said to me, oh, you're going to do it next week, and I'm not going to be here next week, I'll be on vacation, but that's beside the point. <laughs> but you said to me, um, 
can you, will you, you do next week? And whether it was serious or je in jest, doesn't matter. And I said, I'd be happy to do it, I'll do it in English. And he said, yeah, I'll do it in English too. Um, but for me, that's my essence of, at this point in my life, of how I connect with Hashem. It's not a matter of Hebrew or English, that's, my, that's how I connect to the essence of who Hashem is for me in my world at this point in time. Actually, I said I'd use a little Hebrew. So, Mark, we're, I, I'm going I'm to imagine that we're, we're using a lot of the same terminology, but we have a lot of different meaning. Let, let me explain. The, 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 we're using a word here called the essence of God. Yeah. I think, though, if we try and understand what that means we'll be on the same page. We all have ways how we connect with Hashem. We all are on different levels of where we're holding in our connection and what we understand God wants from us at this moment. Mm -hmm. And I, I appreciate that. Can I ask you a question about something that says here? Well, I just want to finish this point. The essence of Hashem is something that we cannot understand, period. So we can never understand the essence of Hashem. Hashem says, Lo My thoughts are not your thoughts. You'll never understand me. So if someone says that they understand the essence of Hashem, either they're God Himself or they can't understand Him. Hashem says, no one can understand me. So far, so clear? Got it. Yeah. But Hashem says, you can't understand me, but I'm going to allow you to grasp me. I'm going to allow you to hold on to me. And you get that through studying the Torah. And the essence of God you get from studying Torah. Correct. So, I don't... Th in this, are we in disagreement? Are we in different no, levels? No, we're on the same level? Yeah. Okay, good. Good. We just got there from Do we not angles. get from the Tanya that the process is one of going through the Sefirot of each Sefer and proceeding along a path we may never reach the the Keter, but nonetheless, it's a process. It's not a Gestalt. So we are understanding and reaching continuous as we reach each level, but it never stops because the chance of us reading, reaching the essence is when we cease to exist in a corporal sense. We're constantly rising That's, within a process. Yes. What I'm saying. Yes, Dr. Malov. Well. <clears throat> So, when we talk about the four cubits of halacha, yeah. um, what, what about the, uh, say, the agadic part of the Talmud? Um, uh, is it, is, are they saying it's only the halacha and not the agada, and then, or, or, or just the whole, the whole thing about Jewish ethics? I mean, that, which made, I mean, I mean to some extent, halacha is, um, Concerned with that, but but um, I think there's there's a lot that goes beyond just halacha. So so, so when he said, how, how narrowly is 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 halacha being defined here? I guess that's it's a good question, and in a simple sense, it's actually being defined. It's actually being defined. There's different opinions, but I think we could right now at this moment take it that it's talking about. Halacha, specific Torah law. And the reason being because 
Hashem is found in that clarity. The clarity of what is the actual halacha, the simplicity. I, I shouldn't say clarity. In the simplicity. When you say, yeah, there's an argument this way, that way, God is within it. But God is even more, the depth, the essence of God is even, it's, is more clearly revealed in the clarity of the halacha, of the actual Torah law. What halacha do we teach the? The answer is we teach them whatever they need to know. So if whatever is most applicable at that moment, boys and girls, dependent on what the, what would be appropriate for them. Yeah, maybe it's better if you don't use the es word essence in that in that context. Maybe it's better if you talk about it's 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 how to live. It's the life of the. It's the practice. It's the. It's the doing that. that, that makes the relation. It, it's, it's the living, it's the actuality, it's the... I'd like to, if we can, go for like three, four minutes, four more minutes, and, and continue to the next page, and we'll, we'll, we'll continue next week. Can you define the four cubits in terms of the roof? At the end, I'll be happy to, yes. Okay, thank you. Yes. It sounds like we have our own personal we have our own personal place. Correct. Correct. And there's a practice. I'll, I'll explain at the end. Therefore, we are on page 154, the right-hand column. First word of the line is therefore. Therefore, after contemplating deeply on the subject of this self-nullification, thinking about discussed above, according to his capacity, thinking about how everything is Hashem, Hashem is one, but that I cannot achieve this unity, let the person reflect in his heart as follows. In as much as my intelligence and the root of my soul are of too limited a capacity to constitute a chariot and a boat for his unity, blessed be he, in perfect truth, I do not have the ability, like the patriarchs, to be a true chariot to God, since my mind cannot at all conceive and apprehend Him, God, with any manner or degree of apprehension in the world, not even an iota of the apprehension of the patriarchs and prophets. If, at, once I've come to this understanding that Hashem is one, but I can't really, I can't truly appreciate the oneness. If this is so, what's my next option? My next option is, I shall make for him a tabernacle and habitation by engaging in the study of the Torah as my time permits. We just said that God is found within the study of Torah. At a point in time, by day and by night, in accordance with the law which was given to each individual in the laws concerning the study of the Torah, and as the rabbis stated, even one chapter in the morning. So the rabbis have told us that uh, there's a minimum we need to learn, which is a sm something small of Torah in the morning and something small of Torah in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. And if someone says, I cannot achieve that unity of God, that understanding of the oneness of God, then what you can do to bring God within you is the study of Torah. And so continues Tanya, in this way his heart will be gladdened and he will rejoice and offer praise and thanks for his portion with a joyous and happy heart that he has merited to act as a host to the Almighty twice daily to the limit of his available time and according to the capacity which has been generously bestowed upon him by God. So Tanya is sharing that, you know, that, that this week's class was titled Hosting God. 
How can we host God in our home, in our heart, in our mind? Through the study of Torah, because God has put His essence within the study of Torah. So let's recap what we've learned in Tanya, and then we can talk about the, the four cubits. We've learned that although we cannot, like, like the patriarchs, be a chariot for God, we can host God, how? But through what the Talmud says, that God is found within the four cubits of halacha. By us learning Torah, we are able to grab onto the essence of God. This is a constant back and forth in Hasidus and Kabbalah. What is greater, the Torah or mitzvos? And over here, at, of course, they're equal. They're but, but we always talk about which one's greater. And uh, in one place it says, well, mitzvot are greater. How do you know? Because the Torah is just the manual. What is greater, the watch or the manual that tells you how to use the watch? The watch is greater. Well, the Torah is just the manual telling you how to do mitzvot. Well, here we're learning, no, Torah is much... Oh, but at this moment we've learned that in the mitzvot and the Torah itself, the study itself, we grasp the essence of God. Or... or Otherwise. Well, isn't it contained in the definition of the word mitzvah? Commandment, blessing, and doing? All which are part of the word mitzvah? C correct, but we're saying that that's the command. Perhaps the study itself of Torah is greater because it connects you to a deeper level of God. So just to talk about the four, the four cubits. An, an Erev, what it does is, it makes your entire city as if it's four cubits. It combines your entire city as if it's four cubits. Does Chabad recognize the era of here? Chabad recognizes the era. But doesn't Chabad is a, has a whole, has, has an opinion that there's a lot of challenges with an Erev. If, God forbid, one time the Erev is, is down and you use it according to the Torah, you're, it's a very harsh... It's, it's a very harsh... Um, Punishment. In other words, well, we, we believe the Erev is, is a fantastic thing, but we personally still try not to use it. So, uh, conceptually, you recognize the existence of one. The Torah right. says that Erev yeah, yeah. exists, but, absolutely. But in practice, in you've practice got to be we, too careful. We try so not to use it. Besides where it's to be there. It's already in place. Doesn't somebody check it before Shabbos, every Shabbos? The, I don't, I'm not on top of it. I don't know. I, 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 believe, I believe that it, it is checked. But nonetheless, for numerous reasons, um, one of them is, as I stated, is that we don't want to come to a circumstance. Okay, I'll give you an example. This is an example I've seen. In Israel, there's a lot of places with an Erev. And I've seen many people from Israel, they come and they automatically carry on Shabbos. Wherever they are, it just slips their mind. It's a, become a part of life. You forget about that. that that's right. Um, well, it's not just an. I've been in Los Angeles. There's a wire. You know when you're in the air or you're not. Right. There's a wire. Yeah. Well, no. So yeah, he was saying so. Well, actually, it's not. It, it's interesting. It's not a wire. I Meaning, I've actually been on a, on a tour of the air. Have a good night. Who decides where it's going to be? It's on the birth of highway. You you could decide. So you can just establish it where you want it to be. Well, you need to make sure that you have you have uh, an understanding of of what it takes. Yeah. Um, and uh, as in your own home, you can make an air of. Your own home is there, isn't it? You can carry in your own. What happens if you have a front yard? So you need to make an Erev to make sure that you could carry there. Oh, if you go outside the house. But right. does that mean you just establish that within this boundary? 
Erevin is one of the most complex laws in the Torah. Um, is that involved with how far, far you carry food and then how much past that? Right, that right, correct, correct. Let me just give you an example. Um, in, port, in this area it happens to be that there's a lot of hills. Mm -hmm. And if a hill is too steep for you to naturally walk up it, that is considered a boundary. So there actually, in many areas of the area, there is not even a wire, just they've used, um, I'll give you an example, when you go up, what's the road where the library is on? Sunset. Sunset, when you go on Sunset, you'll see there are, few, there are many houses that are literally you need to drive up the hill, the drive, go up a driveway. Mm -hmm. And aside from the driveway, it's literally a hill. Yeah. So as long as, there's a, um, as long as there's a marker of about 15 inches high, that will constitute a wall, according to the Torah. So it doesn't exactly mean there's a wire going around everywhere. It means that, that according to the Torah, there's a fence all around in that area. Like the old city. Like the old, well the walled city was literally had a wall. Yeah. Here, to be clear, it's not a literal wall, it's a Torah wall. Yeah. There's a big difference between that. Thank you. Yes, Thank you. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you very much. Thank you.